Let's start with Masayoshi-san. What does he want? Yeah, well, this this would be a big deal both for the two companies involved, uh, Grab and Gojek, uh, as well as SoftBank. SoftBank is the biggest outside investor in Grab. Um, and so for SoftBank, this is a company they've been supporting for a long time. Uh, they've backed a number of ride-hailing companies, including Uber in the U.S. and Didi in China. Uh, Grab uh, has expanded quite rapidly in Southeast Asia. Uh, they've gone beyond ride-hailing into digital payments and a bunch of other areas. It is a business that has been uh, losing money as they've expanded in some of these uh, new areas. And especially with the pandemic, it's been difficult to kind of keep up profitability. So what sources are telling us is that Masayoshi Sun is pushing uh, Grab and co-founder Anthony Tan to work out some sort of truce with Gojek, which has been a very uh, effective rival in ride-hailing and digital payments. In particular, they're based in Indonesia, and that's really their strongest base. So they want to combine those two operations. Mm. Peter, just briefly, how would the companies fit together, and what are the regulatory hurdles? Well, to start with the regulatory hurdles, it'd be very substantial. You're talking about combining the number one and number two player in a bunch of these different markets, and ride-hailing in particular, and a few other businesses as well. So most regulators are not going to look favorably on the idea that they're going to combine the two ride-hailing companies. Uh, there may be a way around that, depending on how they structure uh, the deal. For the companies, it's an opportunity to save a lot of money. They've had to subsidize... Uh, these businesses as they've expanded because they've been competing with each other and if they're able to combine operations they could save some money uh, probably cut out some of their costs too uh, and improve their profitability pretty substantially Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 110 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. I'm very excited to welcome to the show uh, two wonderful researchers looking at issues of labor and tech and politics in the global south. Um, and, and so we've got Rita Kadri, who's a PhD candidate in urban information systems at MIT, and Nupur Raval, who's a postdoc research fellow at the AI Now Institute. Now, Rita and Nupur have been doing really, really important and interesting and exciting work um, looking at the, the kind of on the ground experiences of workers uh, on these on on many of these kind of gig economy platforms, uh, in particular in like Indonesia, Jakarta, um, in India, in Bangalore, and and really I think doing a lot of work both revealing how these things are different, how 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 workers on these platforms are actually organizing what kind of social networks and relationships that they're building in relation to these these platforms, um, while at the same time, I think, doing a lot of really important critical work getting us to think differently and decenter what is oftentimes a very kind of global north centric viewpoint of how these platforms exist, how they operate, what the experiences are of working on them are like, um, and, and instead bringing us to 
outside of that global north perspective, outside of this, you know, very hegemonic relationship of the north to the south, and instead saying, no, this political economy um, in these very large countries like Indonesia and India deserves to be understood on its own grounds um, and not not just in this kind of uh, from a global north looking down on the global south kind of uh, perspective. This is something that I'm very excited to talk about. So Reda and Nupur, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us here. You both co-wrote a piece in Logic Magazine earlier this year called Mutual Aid Stations that provided a just like really interesting ethnographic empirical look at what kind of organizing and solidarity networks look like among, you know, these these uh, among platform labor in particular in Jakarta and Bengaluru. Um and, and I want to I want to talk through that. I want to talk through a lot of your other work, but I would also be really interested to hear as well about your own like methods and approaches for how you understand and how you are studying um, the the kind of political economy of platforms and labor. Yeah, provide us a little bit of that of that background before we really get into the the nitty gritty details of your ethnography. Sure. So I can at least tell you how, what motivated me to start studying something like this when especially ride hailing platforms um, and other kinds of platform services were fairly new, which is 2015, 2016. Um, and I've written this in my dissertation as well, is that it wasn't actually the fact that, you know, so I just moved from Delhi to California to start my PhD. And I suddenly realized that I was now in a place that had no public infrastructure or very little and had very little public transport as well. And all my life in India, I'd grown up, you know, surrounded by buses, metro trains, uh, auto rickshaws, all kinds of things um, that never made me feel like mobility is something I had to think about or, or my mobility was restricted. And I started seeing on my phone how, you know, every like, for months in suburban Southern California, um, my map would have this circular pattern of three or four miles. And that was all I could go around on my feet um, if I didn't want to rely on buses or anything else. And then um, if I needed to even go to the train station, I needed to take an Uber because no bus would go there or there would only be one bus every hour or every two hours. And so that kind of got me intrigued. And I figured that also when I was new in, in this place, um, you know, some of the first people I started speaking to and sort of understanding what this culture is all about was through conversations with Uber and Lyft drivers. So that's what really got me interested. And then we can talk later more about how this in itself also became a method, right? So mobility studies is really big in sociology and updating and thinking through how to study this kind of mobility is also one of those questions. Yeah, that I mean, that that is already, I mean, really interesting to think about, like, you're coming to a place, California, and being like, why is there no public infrastructure? Why can't I move around anywhere? I subsequently found out that it wasn't as if it never existed. Apparently, it was one of the big automobile companies that had actually systematically dismantled a lot of train and bus infrastructure that existed back in the day. 
Yeah, and I think we can definitely talk about that later as well. The way that these these companies, not just these platforms, but yeah, like these transportation companies, like really dictate what infrastructure looks like in a place. Rita, I want to throw it over to you now. Like, how 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 are you approaching this topic and this subject? Yeah, so I started studying this um, a bit after Nupur, and I think sort of Nupur's work really laid a lot of the groundwork for my subsequent empirical inquiry. Initially, I was actually interested in informal work. So a lot of my research had been around informal economies, informal workers, um, and the very sophisticated organizational patterns that they sort of developed in the city. And I was also kind of a parallel interest was methodologically in, in mapping and in using you know, cell phone data and like other these kinds of um, self-generated digital trace data to understand informal economies um, and informal work conditions of informal work in the city. And that, you know, for whatever reasons, led me to thinking about um, in Pakistan at that time, and I think also in India, which what Nupur was studying, there was this uh, rise of Uber embedding itself in auto rickshaws. And I was very interested in which, you know, how this kind of existing informal economy was being transformed by the exist by the embed by the introduction of um, a technology, you know, sort of what changes, what doesn't change. And that I was set to do that research. And then my advisor randomly sent me a New York Times article that was basically like Gojek, uh, which is a, you know, a large mobility platform in Indonesia and is now sort of a super app. Um has so they were like the New York Times article was like Gojek has basically changed informal mobility in Jakarta and it has taken over all motorbike taxis. Um, the pre-existing motorbike taxis don't really exist anymore, um, and Gojek's incredible because they've sort of uh, come in and within I think two years by that their app had only launched for like two years. Um, by that time, um, they have uh, really changed what uh, work and moving around the city looks like. And so I was like, you know, cool, sounds good. I'll go to Jakarta and I'll see what's going on. Um, and at the back of my mind was all of this scholarship that I had read. Uh, you know, I think Nupur's work was very rare at that time, where there's very little, very few people were talking about the global south. Uh, a lot of the work that I had read was from, uh, you know, mostly the U.S. Uh, and talking about how, Uber has sort of come in and, you know, it's really transformed a lot of things. The worker is alienated and the work conditions are terrible and there's algorithmic management. And so that's what that's what I was sort of prepared to see when I entered um, Jakarta. And then I sort of went to Jakarta and I was like, oh, things are very, very different um, here for some very particular reasons, which we can get into later. But my approach then was to really um, embed myself on ground with the workers outside their daily work routines because I felt like a lot of the focus of the studies in the north were on the individual Uber driver inside the Uber or at a cafe. Um, and for me, that's not how I approached the, the study, particularly because Jakarta's uh, drivers were so visibly organized and had kind of stations across the across the city so you could really just go up to one of them and be like hey can we talk to you um and that made it just so much easier um to embed myself in those communities and that's how i started then um my entry point into the platform was really 
the relationships of the workers. And that was made possible because of some very particular histories and urban morphologies of Jakarta, which we can we can talk about. Definitely. Yeah, to understand how these things work, you know, I, I, we very much agree here on TMK that you, you have to understand it through the experiences of the workers themselves, like through their perspective um, to really to really see how, how is this actually operating? What does this actually look like? Another thing we can definitely talk about I want to get into some of those details about like the Gojek super app, right? And about like um, how uh, these kind of mutual, these relationships of mutual aid and organizing in Jakarta. Um, yeah, and, and, and as well in Bengaluru, like something you talk about in Nupur is that it is much more about like relationships to established political power and, and parties. Um, but one of, one of the things that you just mentioned, Rita, that really uh, kind of stood out to me is I think also this concept of informalism, uh, informal urbanism or informal work, um, and how I was just reading some work by uh, Raphael Groman, who's in Brazil um, and does a lot of work on digital labor. And one of the things that he talks about very interestingly is that, you know, like, these these apps like Uber and Lyft and Deliveroo and stuff and and you know uh, are really kind of bringing an informalism to the global north that wasn't really present in such a extreme way. But uh, you know, like Raphael Groman and other uh, scholars, uh, other Brazilian scholars who I've I've read and talked to talk about how like what you're describing as informal work is just that's just work, right? Like that's just how work has operated. Um, in these places for a very long time. And I think that is a really interesting uh, thing to understand and also to understand how like these super apps like Gojek or or like WhatsApp is a super app, uh, especially in places like um, in South America where like it's not just a messaging platform, it's a platform for, for living. It is the internet in a lot of ways um, and how they've been able to take advantage of the already present informalism of life and labor, um, and and kind of not not create informality, but really, yeah, I think take advantage of informality and kind of try to own it uh, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think so. For and I know Nupur also works on similar questions of sort of what is the informal. Um, so I'll talk about it a little bit, how I approach this. Um, and then maybe Nupur can add her thoughts. So I think something that I really struggle with, and because I come from an urban studies background, this is sort of a cardinal question, what is informal and what is formal? Um, so I think in a lot of my work, I try to say that this, this, these binaries that we draw between informality and formality and like global north and global south, um, a lot of these binaries need to be problematized because these are not questions of like static geography or kind of static um, definitions, but they're more, I mean, for lack of a better word right now, just like experiential in terms of what are the logics at play, what are, how are people operating in these systems, you know, what are the entitlements, how are they, uh, what are they getting from the state versus the company versus each other. And, you know, you can have a lot of and a lot of urban studies scholars make this argument that you can actually have a lot of quote unquote informality in a formal system and you can have a lot of quote unquote formality in an informal in an informal system. So in Jakarta, what I sort of um, write about with these with these communities is that they might be technically informal collectives in 
i.e. they're not kind of formal unions, but they have such a high degree of sophisticated organization that you would generally associate with, a, you know, what you would say like is a formal um, system. The pre-existing quote-unquote informal motorbike taxis, they weren't organized by the state in that the state was not regulating them, but even the state you sort of, um, you know, Kerry Rittick talks about this, you're always bargaining under the shadow of the state. So even an informal system has a lot of formal infrastructures and institutions behind it, either by and marked by either the absence um, of the state or the active presence of the state. Um, so that's what I sort of, I think I struggled a little bit when people make this I was also sort of interested in making this argument originally of, you know, Uber is formalizing work in the global south, but it's informalizing work in the global north and like in the platforms like that. But I think when you go on ground, these definitions become so messy that it's difficult to really say whether this clean, linear relationship that you're talking about even um, even exists. I'll just add, I guess, two or three points to that. And this is honestly something that also makes me really curious because I feel like some of the the novelty and the exceptionalism and perhaps especially American scholars discovering how to talk about informality um, is honestly quite surprising to me because I do try to emphasize in my work as well is that if one is really thinking at a global or planetary scale, the majority of the living and laboring world is actually what exists in the global south, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's the questions of size, scale, proportion are actually already quite messy because uh, I feel like especially the reason why, for instance, the U.S. Um, takes up or U.S. scholarship and U.S. normative realities take up so much space and air in thinking about questions of work, labor, economy is not necessarily because of the amount of people that live in the contiguous United States, right? It's actually because it has been the global hegemon economically for such a long time. So a lot of my work, once I started writing it up and presenting and seeing how my colleagues and peers were coming up sort of with this constant surprise or or even like literally learning the first time how to, you know, say and have the word informal in their mouths. <laughs> um, it was quite surprising to me because if you work in a quote unquote developmental setup or a developing economy, you're surrounded or you grow up in the shadow of developmentalism which is mm. not the legacy or the history of just, you know, post-colonial, post-independence countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. But it's actually a, a comparative and a connected history of the global north and the global south. So when you want to think about informality, one can't necessarily think about economic informality or even the normative and prescriptive definitions of what the, you know, global bodies like the IMF or WHO or others would call informality mm. without talking about sort of the history of Bretton Woods and, you know, financial restructuring at a global scale. And the second point I would add to that is that, again, like absolutely definitions kind of get really messy. Um, but to give you an idea of of how widespread this informality is, especially economic informality in a country like India, it is said that until very recently, at least, about 90% of the uh, workforce 
actually works in the informal sector or mm. uh, slash the unorganized sector. Now, if you take that as like 90% of, I don't know, 600 million or something like that, that's still a huge number. <laughs> um, so e- economic informality, even just in, in the more rigid definitions, is by no means an exception, a novelty, or, you know, as I've written, a dystopia, a future dystopian reality waiting anyone. It is and has been for a long, long time the economic reality of the majority of the world. Um, And that's where, you know, I'll just throw it out there and we can maybe revisit if we have time. Um, We've had an earlier moment of similar sort of global north and south frictions in terms of how does one define or prescribe solutions for labor um, in the moment of garment factory workers, right, when Global North consumers felt very energized and infuriated about fast fashion and exploitation. And it was kind of this similar moment where it was like, how do we save those exploited workers in the Global South, in the informal sector? All extremely important points here that I think provide a really nice backdrop to um, now what, you, what, what I think would be really great to get into is some of the actual um, details of, of how this works um, in, that you've observed in your ethnography and you've written up in this um, article in Logic. I want to quote here from the beginning of your article, you say, Forms of platform labor organizing in Jakarta and Bengaluru reflect some of the varied strategies workers in the global south have adopted to survive and transform their precarious working conditions. Low pay, a lack of standard contracts or benefits, physical danger, and threats of violence. In both cities, mobility platform drivers have found ways to develop social support structures underpinned by mutual aid while also investing in collective identity and power. And I think I think what you've really laid out here in this, um, that you've both laid out here in this backdrop is that like the, these, these social support structures, mutual aid, collective identity and power, like it seems to me that one reason why it's so highly developed um, in these places is because it, it, it is not new. Right. It's exactly what mm-hmm. you've been talking about. Like this is the landscape that, um, that, that these cities, that these economies, that these countries have been living with for a very long time. And so it wasn't some huge disruption when like Gojek comes in, right? It's like, oh no, like we, we know how to deal with, as you say, like people in the global north might see as informalism, but for, for these workers, no, this is just a, this is another way of working. This is how they work. So I would love to hear more about, um, from both of you, the, uh, what you talk about in the logic piece about how, what do these forms of mutual aid, what do these kind of highly developed social support structures, um, actually look like? And I might throw it over to Rita first to talk about, um, the Jakarta case study. Yeah, um, I think, I, I mean, I'll definitely get into this, but I also want to throw out that as towards the end, I'd also love to talk about, if Nupur is okay with it, the political sort of sociopolitical conditions under which this article was also written, uh, mm-hmm. which I think shows a lot of the politics of the academy uh, and popular 
consumption of um, or popular conversations around what is you know kind of fashionable to talk about in terms of global south workers because we had such a hard time actually getting this narrative um, taken up by most newspapers and editors and actually i think ed kind of stepped in and talked to people at logic and were like uh, logic uh, reached out to us and were like we're interested in, in this so thanks to ed this piece exists really but i think it'd be interesting to talk about when we talk about um, what is what is a palatable global south worker narrative look like in the global north so i think that's something we can talk about maybe maybe later uh, might be too mm-hmm. before is like like oh we won't get jobs but <laughs> one also one question i would have also not to add on to what y'all have to answer but one thing i am curious about is i think you know in the united states for example we have started to see the beginning of like really deep diving human interest pieces focusing on what the workers actually go through. Mm-hmm. And in those pieces, I've noticed the beginnings of like the discovery that the workers have these support networks already established and mm-hmm. built up, but that there has almost never been any sort of curiosity or interest in asking about. Do you think that, you know, here that is more or less like the does it strike you as that is more or less maybe one of the problems that these these support networks, they also exist in the United States, for example, but they're mm-hmm. just not really examined for a host of other reasons? No, I, I just want to jump in very quickly to say that this is something that in between the period when I graduated and I found Rida and we wrote this piece and we were like strangers to each other before that. Um, I've exclaimed so many times how in the beginning, when I wrote my first paper, which is actually about ride hailing in the US, and, you know, it's received a fair amount of attention in terms of academia and citations and whatnot. But it was almost taboo for people to kind of talk about how, you know, workers have agency, how people are actually refusing or resisting or developing creative strategies and the you know, ever present, like even in 2016, there was so much conversation going on amongst ride hailing drivers on different Facebook groups um, to figure out like similar issues that we talk about. But there was just, I mean, this is my read of it, but there was just some amount of intellectual orthodoxy or perhaps the disciplinary bent of the first lot, first wave of scholarship that kind of was to me, it, it felt like it was excessively framing everything only in Marxist terms that allowed very little sort of space for uh, contaminated actions or desire <laughs> or people sort of breaking the mold in that sense. So that's I like your spot on. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I would agree with this. And I think it sort of ties into one of the motivations to write not just a logic piece, but also our own research, where even something like mutual aid, if you pick up a lot of the papers, um, they're kind of very popular papers, I'm not going to name by, you know, sort of by whom, um, but very popular papers on platform work in um, maybe around like 2016 to 2018, you see sort of people saying mutual aid is not transformative, you know, so even when they acknowledge that there is some mutual aid happening, they'd be like, but they're not unions. So because they're not unions, they're not really going to change much. And a lot of this, Ed is right, is actually focused still on the global south, where because we're sort of 
a focus on these sort of poor workers. You know, they're trying to make the best of uh, a bad situation, but then they sort of bind together and they come together maybe on these like Facebook groups and online. Um, it's still sort of seen as a Band-Aid, I guess, that they're putting on for occupational aid to make their lives a little bit better. Um, and I think what we sort of, what Nupur and I always, always struggle with is that thinking that everything needs to end in unionization to be effective form of labor solidarity or like labor demands need to be couched in a very specific language to be valid doesn't really um, reflect the realities of how much space and what kind of space workers have to organize and also what they're in the rest of the world, but also what their experiences of this work is. Because yes, this work is precarious and this work is, you know, exploitative and there's all of these things, but there's this work also has a certain status associated with it that actually, you know, you sort of talk to workers and they're like, yeah, you know, we're sort of, we, we drive for Uber now instead of, you know, being a rickshaw driver and there's sort of a certain status associated with it. Initially, the pays were also a little bit better. Um, existing unions, and we, as we talk about in the logic piece, have a lot of um, exclusionary uh, modes of operating, um, and so they weren't necessarily very welcoming. So there's all of these things happening, basically, um, that make mutual aid actually a way of um, an entry point into worker organization that Ed is right was not necessarily paid attention to in the U.S., even till I think maybe two years ago um, is when sort of these inf informal organized networks really started becoming a thing. And then um, I know now sort of everyone talks about Dean Spade's uh, book on mutual aid, which is, of course, like a really great book. But even that book sort of is focused on the U.S. and it's sort of like mutual aid has always existed in the U.S. and it's great. But and these articles that I was talking about also kind of, you know, have this sort of surprise of surprise workers collectively sort of come together and they actually talk to each other um, but there's also not a recognition that this is has been happening in the rest of the world for a very very yeah. long time and mm -hmm. that's sort of the long-winded way of saying that's actually what my argument is in my work that these mutual aid networks in Jakarta are interesting and they're they're good like they're great that they exist but that's not the work that we have to do what we have to I think do is push beyond that and say how do they emerge? Why do they take the form that they take? Um, what are their entanglements with the platform? What is it that they can achieve and what is it that they can't achieve? And what are the exclusions that are embedded within these mutual aid networks themselves? Because I think now we're sort of in a moment where we're sort of we're hailing worker power and we're saying, this is wonderful. Workers are banding together. This is great. And it is great. But then these obviously movements, um, as I found out in one, as I write about in one of my papers, that's uh, on COVID-19 and mutual aid networks in Jakarta um, have a lot of, these networks have a lot of exclusions embedded in them as well. So sort of who benefits from these networks? That's also a question that I think we should ask. And those are sort of the motivating, I think, background backdrop uh, to my research. And I think also Nupur's and also why this logic piece article was written. You all have laid out beautifully this kind of double-edged sword of, of acknowledging the capitalist political economy in a way where it's like, on one hand, I think there's the, 
what you lay out to me seems to be this kind of liberal tendency of of discovering the working class, right? That like, oh, there there is a working class and they do <laughs> exist in some way, but they are all uh, victims, right? They are all just victims and they have no agency. The other edge of that double uh, double edged sword, I think, is you know. I, I am the resident Marxist here, um, <laughs> but I completely agree that there is a strong vo- tendency of a vo- of what I would see as a vulgar Marxism of being like, um, no, the working class exists and it is completely dominated by capital in every way. Again, having no agency, right? I think, and both of those kind of tendencies do uh, move towards this idea of stripping workers themselves of all agency. They are only ever exploited. And to be sure, they are exploited in a lot of very serious ways, but um, they are so much more than that. And they are not, they don't just, people don't just lay down and take it, right? No matter what, they always find ways to survive and even thrive um, in these conditions. And and I think that is something that um, your, both of your work really importantly lays out. I just wanted to also add this as an observation and maybe, you know, have you reflect on it is that in the course of those reflections, what I also realized is that those kinds of early arguments that still seem to be sort of more mainstream about this narrative of platforms exploiting workers, I've often tried to think through the primacy of technology in those arguments. Because what I've struggled with, and you know, maybe like Rida's already foreshadowed it, is that it, it's been such a struggle to say that platforms are actually embedded in urban environments, so why are we not paying attention to materialities, for instance, right? And even if we really want to focus on the question of power, which is absolutely great, then technology is not the only force um, in that environment. So how do we compare algorithmic governance, for instance, with local governance or with the kind of political power that we've talked about that's already mapped out and operating in a particular city, right? And the final sort of open question, but also something missing in that, whether you call it vulgar Marxism or the initial sort of this thrust, is that how come we need to go through that chronological journey again of saying, all workers of the world are exploited and hence unite and unite against the platform. But then there's no discussion around identity and around intersectional identities that people bring to work. And so, like, for instance, in my work, I could never really start looking at Ubering within Bangalore unless I was also paying attention to the fact that it's it's the fastest growing migrant labor hub. And that is where the tensions between migrant laborers and the local workers who have, you know, again, have been embroiled in a longer history of feeling like their jobs are taken away. So they've lobbied um, various levels of government to find and seek protections for themselves um, against any incoming migrant workers in tech corporations. Like this is all pre-platform companies, right? And so how do we talk about them? How do we talk about women um, and women being uh, sexualized and racialized in particular ways uh, just when they arrive to the city? And so, yeah, and then how, so I prefer seeing as a media studies scholar, I prefer seeing platforms as a mediating artifact or, and and hence seeing how they sort of shuffle and 
jig up power rather than arriving at that kind of predetermined foreclosed argument of like this is what platforms do to workers and i think just to add to that from an um urban studies and kind of critical geography perspective as well and this and this is what i think is interesting that a lot of people you know those platforms as a as a technology that's entering into the social world are not new in the sense that you know since we've had technologies that are trying to have tried to mediate our social worlds we've had arguments about how much do technologies technologies change how much do they um how are they domesticated how do they bring their own affordances how do all of these things interact to create certain changes um so i think sometimes the the struggle i think in this kind of critical computing i guess hci world um has been to not just introduce questions of context but also questions of pre-existing theory that has talked about some of these questions that i think all of us have sort of tried to do um including jason has tried to do that in different ways um of like oh have you thought about this body of scholarship that's been talking about similar questions of uh you know the that technology is always the outcomes of techno- technological interventions are always contingent and they're based on the context that they're embedding themselves in um as in to give you like a quick example and because i know jason had asked about our the actual details of our study that we've just never gotten to yet which i think we you know like we should i i apologize um as like an example um when platforms entered jakarta so gojek and grab um they i think had this imagination of wanting to organ reorganize the existing motorbike taxi market because the idea was that these motorbike taxi markets are inefficient um they are you know they're sort of um organized around inflexible stations where drivers are all banding together and then um customers will come to them and of course in the idea of the platform the driver needs to constantly be circulating and you know um wherever there is more demand you'll have sort of drivers move there and wherever there is um, you know sort of in an optim in an optimizable labor force that's flexible but also uh, malleable so but when platforms entered jakarta they realized that uh, drivers because a lot of drivers who who joined were drivers who were pre-existing motorbike taxi drivers already brought in a lot of their practices of their work so they brought in this practice of drivers actually wanting to hang out together in groups in public spaces um brought in the practice of drivers not wanting to constantly cruise around the fact that jakarta's own urban space throughout uh, threw up a lot of hurdles to this con- imagination of constant circulation there's a lot of traffic um there's a lot of enclaves that are securitized so drivers can't actually work there because of like ideas of class and motorbike taxis taxi drivers cons- being considered sort of lower class quote unquote uh, for lack of better words so they wouldn't be allowed to enter into some of the elite spaces but these elite spaces are also relying on them for delivery so there are all of these complications that come in and actually interestingly in the last 2 or 3 years the platform has changed the way it operates in jakarta so it has actually started creating these quote unquote offline stations um and so one of my arguments is that even the platform itself doesn't remain the same platforms outcomes don't definitely don't remain the same in across context but how gojek is operating in and its business models and its assumptions of driver strategies in jakarta are very different from what they're doing in in singapore or in in vietnam um so i think even thinking about the fact that 
assuming that sort of the this mobility platform will always operate in the same way everywhere around the world. Um, it's just not true when you empirically look at how these um, these platforms are interfacing. You know, like with any business or brand around the world, you know, sort of they 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 go into a context and then they're like, oh, I guess this is both as a result of wanting to localize, quote unquote, but also I think in Jakarta, my argument is because of this informal worker power that was created through these communities that were able to push back against these companies enough in a way that actually I haven't seen being talked about in the US where Uber drivers don't seem to be to have as much access to uh, higher ups at Uber. I worked on the Uber apps for for a little bit um, and I routinely would run into other drivers uh, and tried to start up conversations with them. And unfortunately, I live in the Pacific Northwest. And nobody wants to talk to each other here, regardless of the topic. But anyway, I, I still tried to engage people and ask them, you know, you know, there are things that we could do to work together to make this job easier for yeah. us. But, uh, you know, there's there's just to be too much of an emphasis in the United States of like individuality, like the best way to describe it in your piece, you had the uh, the single fighters. You know, the people that refuse to work and like work in the uh, the little groups of other people who are just motivated by going out and making money on their own and not mm-hmm. engaging or uh, working with other people in the courier uh, groups. Um, most of the people in the United States are they're single fighters. They want to go out there and make money. Mm-hmm. And if that means throwing someone else under the bus to make that money, they're going to do that. And I think that's the biggest difference here is we've got this mentality of like dog eat dog that that's the only way we're going to get ahead yeah and I, and I think that there's the conditions and this is something that you were getting at a lot here Rita, around context which i think is a really important concept um that's a kind of necessary anecdote towards the tendency of uh to universalize um these logics and and these experiences is that yeah i mean what jeremy is uh talking about also echoes work by um like i'm thinking about like Katie Wells and Kafui uh, Atodo, um, who have, have looked at the ways that like, uh, you know, their studies of like Uber drivers in Washington, D.C. show that like the vast majority of Uber drivers don't know anybody else that, ri- that, that works for Uber. Um, they don't let alone talk to other people. Um, and I think that, you know, and, and those are conditions created by the platform in, in a quite intentional way um, to prevent people from having that kind of connection and, and, and solidarity and, and, and you know, uh, God forbid, doing things like organizing, right? Like those are all risk um, to the platform. But something you talk about a lot in, in both of your work is uh, that that context is not necessarily the same and can't be treated as the same. Like you talk about even like the way that the the platform operates um, in a piece that you wrote, Rita, for uh, ACM Interactions, uh, you say a range of algorithmic absurdities are produced as the mobility platform designed for well-mapped cities with formal unchanging architectures and less chaotic traffic jams is transplanted into the Jakardin context. In, in way of, of, of talking about the specifics some more about the specifics of that context uh, that that I think is really interesting to look at how like um, yeah like Jeremy's experience as an uber driver um, in the US and the Pacific Northwest is absolutely not the same um, as the experiences of people that you've talked to uh, in Jakarta uh, and in uh, Bangalore but I think that it's also interesting to me that 
these apps that we're talking about are um, at least in my context, as in non my context, in Jakarta's context, are technically homegrown in that there are two companies, Gojek and Grab, that are Southeast Asian. Uh, one is Indonesian, um, Gojek is Indonesian, and Grab is Malaysian Singaporean. And yet the logics that they're playing out in terms of wanting to use technology to optimize a pre-existing informal uh, market are, uh, you know, might as well be Uber. But I think there, so, you know, we, we kind of talk a lot about creating more diverse technology and one way of creating more diverse and inclusive technology is just hiring more diverse uh, people. So I think Nupur and I are always sort of also approached in the academy as uh, the harbingers of diversity and hence a different perspective. And they're like, I guess, you know, I don't know, you're brown, so you must know have some other uh opinions which you know sure we do but that's not necessarily because of uh, where we're from but because we actually ended up going up, um, and doing a lot of this work so i think it's interesting that gojek and grab um do replicate some of the logics of of silicon valley um even though they are designed you know so the algorithms are designed in bangalore and california in in indonesia and singapore there's sort of the global algorithmic design architecture um, at play here but some of the, in terms of some of the specifics, I think the um, so, Jaka, so Gojek relies on Google Maps uh, for a lot of its routing algorithms, and also they they have some very particular, like with other mobility platforms, have some very particular ideas of um, how they want to match drivers. So it's basically like if a driver is close by, they'll match them to a rider, um, and they assume that. The only thing that a rider needs, uh, a driver needs to get from where they are to the rider is just the street network. So the assumption is that the street network exists, it's mapped out, and then the driver just needs to go from point A to point B. Um, I think things that they didn't realize uh, would would happen in this, or at least if they did realize, they didn't really care about it um, as much. Um, is that in in Jakarta? You know, you drive uh, in Jakarta. People are, as I said, you know, just thinking about. There's obviously a lot of traffic. There's a lot of um, securitization. Drivers can't really wait um, in public places to even wait for driver uh, for their customers. Um, but also that the city itself is just constantly changing. There are new neighborhoods that are coming up. Old neighborhoods are going down. Informal settlements are coming up, and so the shortcuts are being created that drivers sort of know because they 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 know about this kind of very local granular. They have very local granular knowledge. You would be matched down a route that is actually closed because there's a protest happening, um, or there's flooding and inclemental weather, and so because when it rains, there's one particular street that always overflows. But these are things that are sort of um, you know not very uh, well mapped out technologically. So these are all sort of pushed on to the driver um, and the platform doesn't necessarily consider these frictions when they're, uh, that's, as in, that was at least my experience in, in Jakarta. I don't know if that's also Nupur's experience in, in Bangalore um, or Jeremy's experience in the US. Yeah, I'll just add to that, um, I guess two points or two vignettes. So somewhere, I forget which paper it is, but um, again, like writing about platforms in Bangalore also necessarily means uh, encountering or reckoning with rain as data, 
because Bangalore is also a city where it rains a lot. And the moment that it would rain, despite the fact that the algorithms are optimized and localized and, you know, platform companies kind of have eventually over time figured out that rain is a very important element. It's a computational element as well at this point, um, determining supply and demand and how people are going to act. And so most um, Uber and Ola drivers uh, basically actually stop or log off the app. And so do food delivery drivers and others because they have to directly sort of take a call on whether they want to risk going out and having their car or scooter break down. Uh, while driving in the rain or do they want to actually risk and get the surge pricing and make you know some more money and as some of those things have fluctuated and incentives have gone down um, you know they've definitely veered more towards actually just logging off on mass so it's it's despite uber and ola sort of becoming you know quasi monopolies um, it's still very much understood in Bangalore that the original inefficiency that was created through a mix of public infrastructure and rain has in fact stayed intact because um, now the platforms also replicate the same logics or the same failure of public infrastructure. And the second thing, and this is you know something that I really hope that um, I'm able to study in the future or other people take it up as well, is that I feel like so far, not enough credit has been given to Global South technology companies such as Grab and Gojek that are, you know, homegrown. Same with Ola, same with any company that also wants to localize operations is that they have to engage in this fine dance of mobilizing and offering a sort of socio-technical imaginary or a global imaginary of what their aspiring middle-class consumers in global South countries want, which is not exactly a piece of Silicon Valley or the US, but a piece of that global technological culture, right? Like participating on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat. Um, there's a kind of modernity that comes with consumption. And so going, like taking an Uber, you know, has a lot of heft for its middle-class consumers, at least in India, where taxis have been a luxury um, until very recently. Like you wouldn't take a taxi, you would usually take an auto, uh, auto rickshaw if you wanted to go somewhere. So I feel like that needs to be accounted for. Um, and that definitely plays a role in the local shapes that those platforms end up taking. And on the other end, you know, again, so many similarities. Bangalore um, ha requires real-time map maintenance. And that's something that a lot of these platform companies have contracted out to third-party vendors that usually remain invisible. Um, and that's kind of how I came to that question of like, you know, it's, it's an anecdote or it's a joke in Bangalore to say that um, a street that was two-way yesterday is now one-way. And um, so how, how do these systems miraculously cope with these things, right? And, and then the people I spoke to would never really tell you how the magic happens. But a lot of it is because of this fine balance of also having contracted vendors who, as well as OpenStreetMap volunteers, who are actually working in different communities to make these infrastructures happen that eventually deliver the global or world-class experience that the consumers want in their local geographies.
one thing I've also been, I think, curious about, or especially when you were talking about these tech companies as homegrown and and, and having to offer a vision that resonated with people in their localities and the regions that they operate and eventually monopolize is how they're able to also fend off the monopolies or the blocks of financiers from other places um, and their attempts to enter and try to replicate or try to just reapply their business model unsuccessfully. Is part of that come down to these companies being local, having granular knowledge, having like, you know, a, a sort of um, maybe not fingers on the pulse, but a better grasp of like what their their users want or how to package something for their users than the companies. Because because I think that also I f- that feels like the other side of the question you had about how these companies operate with the same logic as monopolies elsewhere, monopolies in the United States might. And then also at the same time, even though that's the case, the monopolies in the United States have not really been able to successfully break through and dominate. I think, if I remember correctly, they've been pushed out of pretty much like every place where one of these monopolies already existed in Russia and China and Southeast Asia and now the Middle East and North Africa, right? Is there just an, an advantage that there to the monopolization and to the and to you know packaging something for consumption to the consumers because they're there. Yeah, I mean, so I, I tried to look at this question a little bit with with Gojek and Grab because um, they did manage to very successfully push out Uber out of Southeast Asia. The answers are a little bit more complicated than Uber just exited Southeast Asia because actually, so many of these companies one work through just acquisitions. So Uber often either acquires the company and then just still operates as the local chapter. So in Middle East um, and in Pakistan, they acquired Kareem, uh, but it's so, but it still sort of operates as Kareem, but it's actually now an Uber company. And then the other thing that happens is that a lot of the VC funders for these companies are the same. Uh, so, you know, so there, there is some, there is some level of universal capital that is still operating um, in different, uh, with different faces in these companies, in these contexts. The other thing is, I, I mean, I think I'm also very fascinated by this question of why uh, Uber was not able to do well in in places like Southeast Asia and also South Asia. I think, I don't know how it's doing in India, but it didn't do that well in Pakistan. One of the answers that people usually give is that Uber as a sort of US Silicon Valley based company um, refused to localize even to the small extent initially of offering cash payments. Um, And there's an anecdote that sort of goes around where um, someone from Uber was talking to someone from Kareem and someone from the person from Kareem was like, yeah, you know, we're going to offer, we we offer cash payment um, options and Uber, the Uber sort of executive said, uh, we're building a technology for the future, not for the Stone Age. Um, the idea being that their assumption was that, you know, cash is sort of a pre-modern form of uh, money exchange. And, you know, as Uber, we're, 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 we're the future and we will have ca- uh, card payments. And that obviously is a complete misunderstanding of how transactions happen and how many people are banked and have access to cards, et cetera, et cetera. So there is that one element that is like, oh, there's sort of a lack of localization. But I think the more interesting question is why um, Uber also, I think, has this kind of very centralized operations from California um, and their local chapters actually have 
relatively less power and also not just power in terms of making decisions, but also less prestige in the headquarters. So when, and this is all anecdotal, so this is not something that I necessarily feel like I have, uh, I can say authoritatively, but for after talking to people who work for like local local branches, I guess, of these large European and American ride hail and mobility platform and delivery platform companies, um, the European and American workers and managers actually seem to not take these branches seriously. Um, and this, their sort of idea is that this, that the Euro, that the European headquarters and the American headquarters are the source of design and will be the source of planning and strategy. And then the these local chapters will be the, either the executors um, or will be responsible for just like kind of like the coding. There's this bias uh, of what brown people uh, in tech are able to do, um, which I think still continues a little bit in these in these companies. So I the, that I think is one partial answer of why Uber would sort of go into South Asia and Southeast Asia and not localize as fast as you know grab Singaporean when they go from Singapore to Vietnam there's still localization required there but like why are they able to do that quicker than an Uber yeah in the Indian context um, or rather India China and a bunch of other developments happened around the same time um, not to valorize or you know offer that kind of a stock market take on this but um, it it really appeared like uh, so the you know the word on the block was that you shouldn't see Uber as a ride-hailing company, which is probably true, right? So it was also about a platform company like that, uh, trying to figure out that once it's done sort of eating up all its rivals and once it's done sort of with this core business model that is largely also fueled by venture capital, what is it going to do next or how does it turn profitable? Because it was eventually going to you know, go for an IPO. And that's kind of, I feel like, what fueled a lot of these um, withdrawals on Uber's part and ceding to DD, for example. Um, and I remember talking to journalists around the same time. Um, and even today, if you if you could really sort of map out and see where the cash is flowing, uh, one realizes that none of these companies are actually rivals, right? So uh, SoftBank and Tencent have um, fund have funded DD. Um, they have also funded Uber. They have also funded Ola. But at some point, um, DD as a company has also funded Ola in India in order to make it the bigger rival. And uh, so it's an interesting strategy. And some of it I do think in the South Asian region, for example, is also interestingly driven by um, cultural nationalism, right? So there's a lot of anxiety around the fact that China is our stronger growing neighbor and there's no way that India can e compete as an economic power. So the kind of cultural anxieties that it has fueled in the region also have trickled into um, the state stepping in to uh, vilify or try to restrict or try to make it harder to do that kind of global free-flowing financial uh, enterprise. And so instead of being in a certain, so for the longest time, Uber in India was both seen as the U.S. company uh, and hence, you know, possibly the less preferred company by anyone who feels more Indian or more patriotic. But at the same time, 
uh, also as a company that more aspirational users would gravitate towards because going for the homegrown company is, you know, that's the cheaper version. That's the company that actually started offering cash payments way earlier than Uber. So even though it was giving an affordance, but it was, it was more geared towards the masses versus the classes. Um, so a lot of these things and, and a larger focus and emphasis on make in India or prioritize Indian brands and companies have played into um, also the financial restructuring of companies. Um, but I don't think it, it necessarily means that it's the failure of, of a particular company if it's absent in a region, because as we might see, these are all sort of interplayed. Yeah. The networks of finance here are so interconnected with each other. Um, it really does. I mean, everything you just laid out sounds so much more like a, yeah, this kind of cartel model, right? Where it's <laughs> a, a bunch of uh, monopolies and collusion with each other and they're kind of, you know, breaking up the world and saying, okay, Ola, you get this, Gojek, you get this, Uber, you get this. And then underneath it all is like, SoftBank. Can I actually ask, I know like uh, we're the guests, but can I actually ask Ed a question um, that I know Nupur and I have sort of <laughs> talked about um, journalistic practices and the kind of questions that are in vogue right now um, as someone, Ed, who's worked on, you know, these questions of tech and workers um, for a while in the U.S., do you feel like as you talk to your colleagues, there's sort of a, a, a greater interest in telling stories from the global south, even by work, even by journalists who sort of had most of their pra journalistic practice squarely rooted in the U.S., let's say, and sort of the more interest in saying, OK, what's happening outside the U.S. now? Yeah, you know, I think so. I think there are a few things that help, I think. You know, the creation of some outlets like Rest of the World, for example, where the focus is very explicit. Um, let's literally go to the rest of the world, the, the entire, pretty much the entire world, you know, as we were talking about earlier. The, and, and ask and figure out what it's like to actually uh, experience life working or under the shadow of one of these corporations. Um, you know, I think stuff, things like that have helped. I think also there's been... You know, maybe not with some of the larger legacy outlets will do international reporting or focus on global south reporting, but usually like in a very specific angle, like they might not cover strikes, they might not cover protests, but they will cover like on the eve of a merger, some company's workplace culture or the way that workers are experiencing or dealing with the merger as a sort of consequence of how their coverage of workers has shifted over the few years. I think there's definitely been a, a, a huge shift. You know, when I first started studying Uber and Lyft, there was little to none. And what was, I didn't like, which was part of why I started. <laughs> um, and I think over the, then, you know, over the next two years, uh, coming up to when, um, coming up to like, you know, now, I think I will notice more, a lot of coverage, not simply on like, here's an action also that workers do, although that's very important, but like, here's the, here's like a kind of an attempt to look into their lives. Here's like a whisper network that they've set up. Here are support systems that they have to watch out for each other. Here are the holes or here are things that we might expect that workers have that they don't have here in the U.S. and they definitely then they don't have in like Kenya or they don't have in um, you know Egypt or they don't have in like some other country where the focus is. I think there's been growth there, but there's still I think a lot to be desired in that it still feels like a sort of dance. Like you have to suss out what 
the opening is going to be versus um, like we are always looking for stories from the global south. I know with my colleagues, there's there's an interest in it always, and and it's I think it's it's definitely been growing, but also I still feel like there's that limitation in that people still feel like the human interest stories are harder sell. You know, the New York or not the New Yorker. Verge had a had a human interest piece that I thought I really liked because because one it was like I, I think sometimes some of the human interest pieces do the thing that you talked about at the beginning right where it's uh, here's the first time someone is talking about this here's the first time we've discovered a worker support group here's the first time we've discovered um, you know mutual aid organizations when you know this piece by having it contained to one single day drops the reader in the middle of a worker's life. And then you have to experience or get familiar with things that already exist. And it doesn't convey the sense like, this is the first, I'm the first person to discover it. And I know that in readers I talked to afterwards, that was pretty helpful. And I think like that sort of thing cultivates interest and curiosity in a way that might carry over and, and, and generate more interest. But there's still the fact that at the end of the day, you know, um, I think a lot of editors and a lot of newspapers still th- prioritize what's going on in the United States above all else. I think that the audiences don't care or only want to go there. If there's something uh, that they think might be um, mirror that might mirror what's going on in the U S and can be easily translated missing a huge chunk of what's going on uh, usually. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know. I, you know, with my writing, I try to at least focus on the workers to try to disregard whatever the company is doing as much as possible because it doesn't, matter <laughs> right <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in like um i am interested in figuring out ways to like get people to the point where they have a better under they have a sufficient enough understanding to also to be a little horrified to action we're not there yet but hopefully I'm not in the media, but I do have a very kind of tangential intersecting relationship <laughs> with the media. Uh, and as a, as a, a keen and constant reader of it, um, one of the things that I think really bugs me a lot when, uh, when a, a, a big magazine or newspaper based in the U.S. or in the U.K., you know, goes over and does some investigative reporting about um, what's happening in China or what's happening in India or something like that. Um, so much of it as well is like, uh, yeah, very much this kind of wide-eyed naivety as well of like, oh, wow, look at what it's like over here, right? <laughs> and they're like describing stuff about like the workplace culture at, um, you know, Alibaba. I'm thinking about like a Financial Times article I just recently read, or they're describing something about like the worker experiences uh, with like um, Ola, Gojek or something uh, with seemingly no ability to recognize like the waters that they swim in, um, that, you know, in the US or in the UK. Like even a lot of the reporting around like the social credit scoring system um, in China was like, like seemingly uh, completely ignorant of, of things like the FICO score and like credit scoring as an innovation of the US and the you know, financial system and something that has been around for a very long time. It's like they have to go to these other countries to um, denormalize things that are so normal that they don't even recognize that they've been living with those same conditions and systems for decades. Extremely aggravating. And I think it shows this like 
tendency towards a, a ahistorical, a, a spatial, a temporal analysis where it's like you have to go to the developing country X um, to 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 provide a stringent analysis and reporting on something that has been going on in your country for a very very long time. Uh, it does have this very like. Uh, I mean, it is very colonial um, through and through. It's a very colonial mindset. And I think it also gets to something that you uh, wrote, that you've written about Newper in, um, in a piece that you had in ACM Interactions around uh, interrupting invisibility and this kind of trope of the invisible worker. Um, and, and it seems like, yeah, on one, on one hand, uh, you know, as you, as you talk about, right, like, Invisibility for whom? Uh, you know the 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 idea that a lot of this work um, that underlies like artificial intelligence, for example, something we've talked about on TMK a lot. The the kind of actual tech work and click work and piece work that goes into AI. It, it, it really does seem like this stuff is either treated as completely invisible. Or when it's made visible, it's only done so in a very specific way by going into these places and saying, oh, look, I found it. I'm the first person who found that this exists. Um, while at the same time, and this also gets to a second form of invisibility you talk about uh, in your piece, Nooper, and building on like the work of Lily Arani, um, that like, what counts as innovation? Who gets to do innovation? Um, how are these, uh, uh, you know, hierarchies of value um, kind of constructed in terms of like, uh, you know, oh, uh, we found these invisible workers, but they're all only able to do um, this like, quote unquote, mundane, unskilled, replaceable work, right? Like, uh, so yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it would be great to hear more from from both of you about about that very colonial tendency and about this trope of invisibility. Sure. So I can go first. And in fact, I feel like now this is going to become a meta conversation, which I'm more than happy to have. So I would invite all of you all to jump in. Um, and just taking off from where Jathan left off uh, and what Ed was saying as well. So this is also a question to the both of you, right? So the reason I wrote that piece and I thought very hard before I wrote it and I'd been thinking about it for a while is because I can never really tell as an academic working in my small little niche whether this is something that people don't know about. Um, and by people, you know, we can we can ask who these people are, our imaginary audiences, right? And that's partly the reason why I wrote this piece is because I think as recently as two days ago, I read another piece, I think, in one of the main leading news publications about some kind of invisibilized workers, some hidden ghost workers powering some other AI application. I feel like, okay, maybe, you know, if this was two years ago, uh, this might still be a revelation. Or possibly, you know, given how big the world is and how many people live on in this planet, maybe a lot of people don't know about these quote-unquote hidden workers of AI. So I, I want to be generous and I want to say that it's not as if there is no utility to to mobilizing um, this trope of visibilizing what's invisible. But it still doesn't answer for me. And that's the other part of where I get slightly irritated is, and, and it's the meta bit of why I now, as a native informant and expert, 
keep getting approached by all kinds of media outlets, all kinds of scholars even, to keep rehearsing this position, right? So won't you tell us about the hidden workers of AI or platforms or this or that? And then it's no longer about the hidden or the visibilized, uh, the invisibilized workers, because you start realizing that what counts and, and, you know, really what they're looking for is the specific invisibilized workers in the global south or outside of Europe and the US. And then they want you to tell them the story of people who work in back-end offices or, or honestly, maybe the people asking me these questions are don't even know how to put a face on on who they're talking about. And so they want me to give them a name, give them a face, humanize those workers. And what and why it astounded me and why I wrote the piece was because if you go to Bangalore, you go to Mumbai, you go to Delhi, you go to any big Indian city, we're also in the middle of perhaps the largest unemployment crisis that we've had in a long, long time in the history of maybe post-independence India. It was when it began a few years ago, it was also dubbed as our moment of the youth demographic dividend because globally, the world is getting younger. And I think the median age of the entire African continent right now is less than 25, something like that, which is huge if you think about it, right? The amount of young people joining the workforce. And same with India, um, the amount of, I think, the median age is 28 or something like that. But we don't particularly have uh, solutions or employment opportunities to give to all of these young people joining the workforce. And so... Uh, unemployment, uh, anxiety, as well as advertisements for all kinds of IT and technological jobs, in fact, saturate the urban environment. Anywhere you look on a pole at the bus stop on walls, there's just posters and flyers everywhere, um, possibly scamming people who are desperately looking for jobs, telling them to make a call, telling them to come in and do a certain kind of work. And in the Indian media, you have another trope that keeps getting recycled, which is of this uh, overqualified engineer who spent a lot of money and time getting a computer science degree and now works at the gas station or mm. now works as a manual laborer. And, and that kind of that trope, you know, makes Indians or is supposed to make Indians question the value, worth and employability of the degrees that they're going towards. So that was, I think, the idea. And the reason why I thought this could be a meta conversation is because I'm genuinely curious um, if this is only happening because we have a 24-hour news cycle and we all collaboratively need to keep producing news and media pieces and whatnot for our audiences, which is why some of these tropes never go away. Or is there a way that we can possibly break or eventually retire some of these tropes? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough because I think this is something that I really struggle with in my own work also. How do you write and narrate and translate a very rich social reality that's obviously very complex without yourself falling into these tropes of either sort of romanticizing the power of the the, the worker and all the the joy and the resistance and the everyday resistance that they are creating. Um, 
without exoticizing these locations as, you know, these sort of these far off lands where interesting things are happening. You know, that's also very kind of a colonial way of telling stories. Um, because I think these, like, so many, like what I've seen in Jakarta so much of, you know, when I went in there, uh, sort of when I entered Jakarta uh, for the first time as with like this kind of researcher hat on and I saw all of these worker collectives that have just, you know, just incredibly um, hospitable, joyous, they're joking around, they're kind of hacking the algorithm, they're going about their daily lives, you know, they're just kind of like, just like us, right? They're just like living um, as we do, you know, as academics. Sometimes we're precarious, but sometimes we're having a great time also. It's just, you know, the, um, it's, you know it is what it is. Uh, all jobs suck and all jobs are great. So how do you tell that you know, so on one hand, you have that. And then obviously, there is this backdrop of larger processes of extraction happening and technology and digitizing precarity and platform power and algorithmic management. So all of these things are happening at the same time. Um, workers are also, you know, they're workers who actually love their hustle and they want to make as much money as possible and extract as much as they can out of the platform. And then there are workers who are just tired and they're like, we're making no money and what do we do? So I think the the way I have sort of not really solved it, but it's kind of uh, tried to deal with it is to, you know, as what Ed was saying, sort of you, um, amplify the worker's voice and say these entanglements are are complex and these things are also happening, but these things are also happening and sort of, you know, how do we, um, how, you know, this is, and they're happening for these these reasons, but they can also happen just as well in the U.S. as they can in Jakarta. They're not happening in Jakarta because Jakarta is some kind of like special exotic land, but it's just institutional factors that exist in Jakarta and similar institutional factors could exist in the U.S. and we could see the same things um, sort of happening. So I think for me, it's sort of moving, trying to, one, be careful of description, but then moving beyond description to some of these uh, larger explanations of, of how and why. Um, that's one thing that I think that I've tried to do in my work, but it's obviously very, very difficult. We all, we all, we're all trying to write for a particular audience, and unfortunately that particular audience is not the worker, right? We're not telling the workers their back their story. We're t- trying to tell people who are either naive or want to be shocked or want to be awed or want to be want to feel something, which is why we have all of these articles doing the rounds on Twitter where, you know, you're like, refugees are powering AI systems, right? And then sort of like, it's, it's you know, it's sort of an important story to tell, but how do you tell that story without, you know, really, as Nupur was saying, invisibilizing the conditions of work that exist outside this little interaction between the refugee and the and the AI and the micro task um, coding system. So I think it's it's a, it's a struggle, um, particularly a struggle that we also faced as Nupur and I wrote this logic magazine piece of how much to explain uh, who is our audience. So Nupur and I had this entire conversation and I think it's relevant here is, I think we called it like voyeuristic uh, tourism of the global south mm. how do we make sure that our piece is not this where we're just like you know this kind of uh, style of writing or like the colors and the the colors and the yeah. culture of the global south mm. is so beautiful and then thomas friedman called it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes so i think we did we had a really long conversation about that exactly this of how what is our role to play 
in perpetuating some of these narratives as we position ourselves, quote unquote, as experts of the global south. Um, one of the reasons we actually wrote this article is also to disrupt the idea of the global south and to say mm. it's not south versus north because you would Jakarta and Bangalore are both technically the global south, but have such very different experiences because of all of these other things mm. at play. So, I mean, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but the idea is that I think we're all sort of also complicit in this problem as we write about the global, quote-unquote, global south. And there are obviously organizational incentives at play. Um, there's academic incentives at play. There are personal incentives and social media incentives at play. So how do we sort of escape that? I've also had similar heartening experiences with other immigrant or international students and scholars in the U.S. is that when we're relating our stories to each other um, and what might be, you know, typical South-South conversation, right? Or, but it doesn't have to always be. It's just perhaps a conversation that is not routed through the U.S. And so it could also be a person from East Europe or anywhere else um, just informing another person from South Asia about how they see a certain reality. And we, while writing the logic piece, I think we went back and forth many times um, trying to explain some metaphors or, you know, some local sort of constellations or arrangements that might relate to a road or, you know, how people do certain things. And uh, I think we both had questions when we were given edits because we were like do we really need to explain this like is it not obvious the thing that we're describing and I, I do struggle a lot more with that kind of an epistemic difference or you know descriptions when I'm talking to U.S. peers and colleagues um, but when two international students are talking for instance and it's it's not like we understand each other obviously or naturally it's just that Cultural translation is just sort of the assumed currency of talk, right? Like mm. to compare, to contrast, to exchange, and hence to tell stories that don't necessarily need full understanding to, to be able to follow the larger points is its own kind of joy. And, and I do feel like, or maybe at least I'll try to do more of that um, in my future writing. I mean, I think that this is all extremely important as you know answering the question or or, or continuing the discussion i, I want to quote some of newper back at you guys um where you you write in the the acm interactions piece you say but in a world of global supply chains care or empathy defined and enacted only through seeing the global south other as just like us human but poorer has little effect unless it translates into at least a fundamentally decolonial cosmopolitan ethic. And I, I, I really like that you pack in so much in that one sentence. And I think it really kind of gets at this, uh, yeah, this like Thomas Friedman-esque, you know, travel writing, uh, you know, it's a tech column, but it's like a, but it's a travel log or whatever. I was talking to my Uber driver the other day when I was on the way back. <laughs> on the way to, to the airport when I was yeah. jetting off oh to God. another global South city, yeah, you know, <laughs> Yeah, but it, but it is completely devoid of what you aptly call decolonial cosmopolitan ethic. We 
we we might start wrapping up. We're we're going a bit long. I mean, because the discussion is so so damn good. Um, but uh, I would love to hear a little bit more. I mean, in terms of it is difficult to escape the trope, right? Uh, like we all find this in in our work in various ways. Or yeah, like you know, how how long do we have to talk about? invisible labor before we can talk about something else, right? How long can we talk about uh, the these platforms before we can contextualize them, not only in the places they operate, but also within these kind of global histories of colonial hegemony, uh, you know, global financial, political economy, like all of this stuff. Like it, it, I think that is something that aggravates me the most about the trope is that we never move beyond it, right? We never use the trope as what it ought to be, which is a, a nice framing device. Because I think for a lot of people, it is still a kind of shock and awe uh, of, of saying like, you mean there are refugees doing data <laughs> labeling? You know, it's like, yeah, there are. and But why? <laughs> why is that the case, right? Like, why does that exist? Um, and and like, who, like, who are these people? Beyond refugees who are kind of just, you know, clicking yeah. on things, like, do they not have an identity and a voice beyond that? Right, exactly. It's like, uh, it's like that, that, like the most revelatory thing for a lot of people is to recognize that others have a just as rich, uh, internal life, uh, as you do, right? It's this kind of like protagonist syndrome, right? Where it's like, you know, I, and I think that we are kind of marshaled towards that, like, I am the protagonist of my reality or of the, of reality, right? When it's like, no, and I, uh, what you talk about around like care and empathy, uh, is so important. And I, I don't think we can overestimate, um, the importance of care and empathy, but also, uh, the, the seemingly just like complete lack uh, of it, um, in so much of the, you know, nominally, uh, critical reporting or scholarship about this stuff, which still does fall into that capital O othering um, of of these people uh, who who are just like us uh, in in like every single way. Um, and so I would I would love to hear um, as we kind of bring the show to a bring the episode to a close. Um, you know, I know you Nupur have written uh, about this kind of an agenda for decolonizing data science as you've as, as you've called it and uh in in the episode so far both of you have talked a lot about um this kind of decolonial um ethic and and frame for doing this analysis so i would love to just give you both um the the space here at the end of the episode to talk a little bit more about what you think that looks like um and and yeah, just what 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 does that kind of motion, that normative move towards decolonizing techno science, decolonizing labor, de- decolonizing our our the way that we relate to and understand um, these these kind of global systems? Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, I was just trying to look for a book title. This is yeah, so it's a book by uh, Brigupati Singh, who is an anthropologist who wrote. Poverty and the Quest for Life, Spiritual and Material Striving in Rural India. The issue with when I was trying to wrap up my dissertation project was that I'd stayed with it for so long and not done a typical ethnography, which might be a year or a year and a half, because I was in a different kind of a setup. So at the end of it, what happened is that 
I had studied platforms from different kinds of positionalities. I had often been the industry researcher who had gone through a tech corporation to study productivity and flexibility and produce implications for design and things like that. And then other times I'd been an independent researcher and uh, um, an action researcher as well who had co-designed certain things with workers to see how far we could take worker-led activism. Through all of that, while all of those experiences in themselves were quite rewarding, when it came down to writing it up, I faced so much moral hesitation and dilemma over which story to prioritize or how to specifically write this story, um, the one from Bangalore about workers doing certain things and platforms remediating power, that um, I was looking for all kinds of answers. And the reason why I bring up Brigupati Singh's book is because that's kind of when I found it. And it made me think very productively about uh, reflexivity and positionality. Because I think the question that Jason has essentially opened up and something that we all should reflect on as academics and journalists and others is that this is in fact not really just about platform workers, even you know in this minute, right? This is more about situating ourselves um, so something that I often ask academics half seriously, but I think it also pisses off a lot of people is that when we frame these narratives about the poor workers, or, you know, the humanized other, do we have a chance to also reflect on our own humanity? You know, when we frame narratives around precarity, especially, right? Um, and and rightly so, economic precarity is a reality that we all face. It has different textures depending on where we are and what we do. But that doesn't automatically somehow mean that that we're unable to join or connect our own precarity or, you know, precarity as a widespread condition of life across the globe or in the people that we study and be able to situate ourselves as somewhere not far away from them. And that's kind of the thing I've struggled with is that often the people whose stories that I'm describing culturally, socially, politically, and often economically, I'm much closer home to them than I am to my audiences and my peers in the academy who, who in fact, I'm, you know, educating and explaining a lot of these things. So I feel, I wonder, or some of this wishful thinking comes from, you know, the desire to have this kind of reflexivity or a sliding scale or an agility that allows us to not fall back upon our um, given and comfortable modes of na narration, which, you know, like, yeah, you're an academic so, or you're a journalist, you know, and you saw something, you saw the life of a poorer person or you saw the life of a working class person. And so, you know, yeah, the one narrative you could offer the world is visibilizing the invisible worker. So I feel like there's so much scope for creative, engaged and politically engaged, right? Like radical storytelling, which the book that I mentioned really does because this professor or this academic who at the time is in the U.S. Academy doesn't end up writing a story about um, rural poor people in a, in a remote part of India. He finds extremely creative and responsible ways to talk about how these people construct their life world and how they're really making a living and, you know, negotiating values and all other kinds of questions. I think, I mean, I have very little to add to what Nupur said. I, I agree with, um, as always, everything that she has said. I think... <laughs> 
what you when you was talking is reminded me of um, something that I think I think Jimamanda Negosi uh, Adichie says about the danger of a single story, and I think that sort of applies as much to platform work as much as it applies to our lives and this larger question of representation. Um, when there is just, it's not that any of these stories that are being told about, you know, the refugee in the and the the refugee camp and the AI systems or the atomized Uber driver, um, they're not wrong. They're in the sense that they are, that this is true, but it becomes a problem when they become the only lens um, through which and the you understand um, these people and the only uh, story that you have to tell about them. And then it just keeps going on and on. So one thing obviously is, the, the biggest problem is that someone else is telling their stories and then, you know, the, mm-hmm. that someone else is embedded in larger incentives, whether that's organizational, uh, personal, cultural. Um, so that's one, obviously, problem. Are there spaces through which um, we can minimize this work of translation that academics keep having to do? Um, I don't know. Open question. Um, but I think beyond that, thinking about our positionality, as Nupur said, is very important. I think... I think thinking about methods is also uh, very important, uh, particularly even within, you know, sort of when people talk about methods, they're always like, oh, you know, ethnography versus big data. But I think even like choosing how you're you're doing the the ethnography is so important. So in my case, I chose to do my ethnography in the worker collectives. So I sat with the workers and I went to weddings with them and I went to like school with them and I went to like ambulance escorts with them. So what I, what did I, I think what I had to be very careful about was the story that I was getting again was not kind of the authoritative story because I was looking at it from a very particular lens of the group collective. So I I was looking at the platform through the worker collective and that meant a lot of individual worker voices got um, shut out from my story. So now I don't think I should say, I think I should be upfront about that and say I got certain things out of this particular site of ethnography, i.e. I got to see these very rich worker relationships, both in interaction with the platform, but outside the platform as well. But at the same time, I didn't get to see a lot of the exclusions that were embedded in these stories because sort of a collective voice was speaking and the individual was not speaking. Versus the other side, if I had chosen to just interview each single and follow each individual driver separately during their work hours, the story I would have narrated would have been different. So I think just thinking about your site of research um, a little bit more, for example, like kind of adding an extra layer of complexity, just like Nupur, I also kind of navigated multiple spaces. And one of the spaces I inter- I navigated was uh, being a data scientist at a large global mobility platform uh, for the summer. And that meant that I was basically now suddenly seeing these drivers as what, you know, I call like, a lot of people have called this, but I sort of used this in my upcoming paper, like dots on a map. So what mm-hmm. happens when drivers go from being dots on a map to these kind of very living, these rich, holistic lives that I actually went and saw in Jakarta with their own incentives and with their own imperatives and with their own strategies. I think sometimes as ethnographers of work, we do do the 
we are kind of as storytellers we do do the equivalent of those dots on a map where we create singular frameworks for understanding drivers and because it's ethnography we we like oh but this is valid and this is rich um but it's rich in a very kind of particular framework and in a particular um in a in a particular way and it's not rich in other ways so i think just thinking through that for me has been helpful in think in in saying okay this is a story but this is not necessarily the story and we need to create mm. keep creating spaces for a multiplicity of uh, of these stories stories Excellent. I mean, th- this has just been a fantastic discussion. So, so rich, uh, so important. And so, um, I want to thank both of you very much for spending, taking so much time uh, to to discuss your work with us um, and to share all of this. It, it, uh, Deeply appreciated. So, thank you again to Newport Raval and Rita uh, Kadri for for coming on TMK uh, and. Uh, I will, you know, there will be links to all of the different papers from both of you um, that we've discussed here in the episode description. And I highly recommend everybody um, read through those. You know, the Logic Magazine Police is a is a is a great place to start, but it's only only the start. Uh, and so, very much looking forward to to what comes next um, from both of you, and very much. A, very much agree uh, that I hope you know that this kind of this decolonial ethic and method really let's move beyond the tropes, right? Let's move beyond the tropes. Um, they're tropes for a reason, uh, and and uh, there there is so much more um, here to study, so much more to understand, and so much more here to change um, as well. And we we really can't do that if we do it without the empathy and care um, necessary to be like, these are not just dots on the map. These are people. Um, they are people living in a particular place, working in particular ways. Yeah, it's our responsibility to, at the very, very least, recognize their humanity, um, which unfortunately, I think uh, a lot of a lot of people uh, don't go that that necessary step. All that is to say, thank you so much again. Yeah, Where thank can you both. Uh, do you have any, where can people find you? Um, you have website, Twitter, any, anything you would want to direct people to, to keep, keep up with your work and find out more. Uh, I mean, I'm very, I'm terrible at, at Twitter. I have a Twitter account, uh, but please, I'd never tweet. It really stresses, Twitter stresses me out. Uh, you guys are much better <laughs> at it. I know I keep lurking. Um, but you know, feel free to email me if there's something that people want to talk about. I don't know, Jason, if there's an ad, if there's a way to link a website, I do have a website. It's mm-hmm. my name.net, uh, as in ridakadri.net. Um, my email address, uh, is on there. So, or you can always find me on Twitter. It's just my name. So yeah, I mean, in the age of social media or in the age of Google, I guess, archiving all of our personal, uh, contacts, <laughs> I'm sure someone can find my phone number and address. <laughs> that's a that's a humble way of saying just google me <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i i think that's i think that's the most appropriate response just google, me. <laughs> just google me. yeah google will figure it out for you uh, but i also just really want to thank jason ed and 
Jeremy, for giving us this chance to uh, speak with you guys, think with you guys, um, and also being so receptive to a lot of the, at least on my end, Nupur is always very articulate, at least on my end, a lot of strange, uh, sometimes ramblings of uh, frustration that I think we've both experienced. And uh, this was basically a window into our WhatsApp conversations, which I hope never <laughs> leak. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is basically what we spend most of our time talking about anyway. So it was wonderful to get the opportunity to share these thoughts with you guys and hear your um, hear your thoughts on this. Thank you for sharing with them. You know, uh, you both always talking with you both is and, and listening to you and reading you is, is always insightful and learned a lot. Mm. I feel very important. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we're we're only giving you the importance that you have and deserve. Uh, and, and I will not I will not validate what you said here, Rita. You did not ramble or anything. It was all fantastic and wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. I didn't hear that. All I heard, yeah, you did great. <laughs> all right, well, wonderful. Uh, thank you again, and thank you, our dear listeners, uh, for well listening. Um, and you can also find us at Patreon.com/slash/ThisMachineKills. Uh, for more episodes every single week, we have our ongoing reading series on Windy Tunes, Control and Freedom, um, which is a very excellent and crucial work of media studies and, and critical cultural theory. So follow along with us there on Patreon. Um, and so until then, thank you again. And later, later, later. इफ्तिताही में तो थोड़ा सा लगता है डर डर की कसर से ही तो फैलता है शर जैसी हूं वैसे ही रहूंगी खुद पे है फखर मेरी बातें होंगी हिस्ट्री अभी नहीं होगा असर सच में बोलती इनके चेहरों पे उदासी जबी इनको गाली तो दूंगी मैं डेमोक्रेसी है पहले भी बोला था और बोलूंगी अभी ये दोस्त सारे होते ही तो फर्जी हैं अगल बगल सारे मेरे मंडराते सांप वही ढसते आते जो जो के करते आप मुनाफिक गुलाम खालिस को जान भी हाजिर है खून का बदला खून खाके बदले खाक आनन फानन वाला काम नहीं हम तो रुक के चले उठाने की स्टेज में ये सारे झुके चढ़े म्यूजिक मेक्स पीस पर आई नो पीस देयर यहाँ तो सारे एक दूजे को बस रोन के बड़े स्निकर भी कर छोड़ो आई वॉक इन मसलीपर्स आर्ट ऊपर नीचे नहीं होता वी ऑल आर इक्वल पर वालों को गाली देना है इलीगल देर आप फॉर फेम एन एम द वॉइस ऑफ माई पीपल जो बात छेरी दिल में कलम बोल दिया अब तो लियारी वाला मैंने भरम छोड़ दिया दे सेन पर अब शर्म छोड़ दिया थोड़ी मुख्तर सी बातें हैं This is the shit. Get over here.